Welcome everyone, Shabbat Shalom. We're in the middle uh, of this parsha of Va'era, which is uh, appearances, and we're in a discussion, welcome, uh, of the, I don't want to say plagues, because we say ten plagues, but these are ten signs, and we'll read this uh, very clearly. Challenges? Um, Miracles, or omens, or there's so many different ways to frame it. As we look at the signs slash miracles slash wonders slash portents slash miseries slash plagues, notice I used all those terms because there are Hebrew analogs to each of those as we describe these events. I want to be very clear with where I'm going and what I want us to consider. And it's a question that Ibn Ezra, one of our commentators, had. Exodus chapter 7. So we're on... Oh, chapter 7. Ibn Ezra puts it this way. Did Pharaoh sin if God hardened his heart? What choice did he have? What choice did he have? Hi, Linda, welcome. Chapter 7. He who? Pharaoh. What choice did he have if God explicitly... Good morning, Margo. Said, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart, as we're going to read. And the text does bear out some complications here. And forgive me if you've already been through this this process with uh, every year. This is really, and every Passover is an important exploration. What I would like to spend this hour on in particular as we go through uh, the first seven plagues, because the last three are in the next Parsha, um, of locust darkness and the death of the firstborn. What I'd like to go through here is a spiritual um, diagnosis of. Can anybody read any any? I know we have some medical professionals here. What is that first uh, Pharaoh's diagnosis? If I were a Pharaoh's doctor slash rabbi, ah, what did you? That's say? very interesting. Oh. Is it narcissism? Hard, ah. Okay. So heart was hardened, and we'll get there. High and welcome. Plenty of room. Or it could have been high blood pressure. <laughs> what is what is moral cardio arteriosclerosis? It's a hardening of arteries. It's a hardening of the arteries, the pathways, and therefore. Ah, you got it. You got it. Hopefully not moral. Only physical. Well, so, but what am I? What am I diagnosing here for Pharaoh? Which is different than narcissism. I, I don't think it's narcissism, and we could talk about. I, I, Pharaoh's megalomania is a different aspect of that. His insecurity using the outside sources, there is that. But that is not what I'm suggesting here. So if he knows he's not well, he may have limited time to live, and thus he's looking at his surroundings and the future. Does he know he's not well? Well, we don't know, really. I believe that it is a moral hardening of the heart that initially is done by free will and choice. And then becomes habit. That ultimately, and power, and the ability of freedom, just like, you know, a smoker after smoking 20 years, and all of a sudden he turns around and he has emphysema. He's like, oh, if I had just not done that last pack in the 30th year. Well, now, was... It was a, it was a habit. It was a habit formed initially that over time is a moral arteriosclerosis, as an example. But really, so that's, and I want to be linear about this as we walk through, or I'm trying to be linear <laughs> about this, because I think there's one layer of this which is in what 
aspects is God hardening and in what aspects are we hardening or Pharaoh hardening? What is that relationship that over time I can't make those choices anymore? And that's the first layer that I really want to walk through these first five plagues. Uh, and remember, this isn't just an individual. This is Pharaoh. This is the king of Egypt. He, it, God is truly trying to make a big display. Second, I've put three terms up here. I almost felt like it was erotic literature as I was writing them in English here. Stiff, hard, and heavy. But <laughs> these are three different verbs that are used to define Pharaoh's Lave. And I think the other uh, major uh, translation that we need is lave, which we say is heart. Oh. But it is also mind. In the biblical sense, the lave, the faculty, yeah, was inverted in the biblical period. So what does it mean to... So Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. That's the first level of this question of at what point along the line of moral arteriosclerosis do we become desensitized? And so then it is inevitable. Uh, and we're going to hopefully hear examples from you in your lives, but also in, in our society of where was the line between caring and change and the ability to change and just simply being hardened to it. But really, what is the difference between vayakshe, to be stiff, versus vayachazak, to be obstinate, obdurate, and vayachabed, simply to be heavy or weighted? And I think they're different aspects of this moral heart, and hardening's almost the wrong... Yeah, yeah, uh, no, I can't say hardening. This ossification, this, this frozenness that happens in these three different ways. And hopefully by the end of this time together, we'll be able to recognize in ourselves when we are being simply reactive and stiff, uh, hard as in uh, uh, solid and yet totally refusing any cha- change, and, and I would frankly say, Yechabed, that third one is just dull and heavy. It doesn't matter what you say to me. I'm just like, whoa. Which is different than stiff. Okay. Yes? And we're attributing this to Pharaoh and not to God, who has hardened his heart for the purpose of showing his miracles and God's power. Correct. And now we're going to get perfect, because now we're going to get to the text, which, and it's true, and we're going to read this out. God hardens Pharaoh's heart only after the first five plagues. It is the sixth plague that uses and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. The first five, we're going to read this closely now. The first five were, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So there is an argument to be made in in the initial stages. God knows who these people are going to allow them to make those choices but ultimately that is how God makes Pharaoh's heart hard. It simply allows Pharaoh to be stiff obdurate heart and then it is God's action. This is how free will still comes into play. Back to even Ezra's question, what sin did he do if that's the way it was going to be? Can we go back to the word live one second? Please. Because in English, heart has an emotional sense. When we say someone's heart was hardened, we think that person's emotions were hardened. Right. And yet you said there's also mind, which in English is a lot more, at least how I take it, a lot more logically and about thought than necessarily about emotion. Correct. So So is the sense of your heart or mind, or would it be better to say hardened is mind than hardened is heart? So it depends if you're narrow reading or broad. I think it was his open or not. <laughs> but I don't think it's I don't think it's his emotions here. Oh. I think he's a paranoid delusional. And from the first chapter what we studied last week was really his fear of the Israelites who were doing quite well in Goshen 
uh, they were outnumbered and they would find some third outside group to kind of come and take over. That's not a heart reaction. Oh, I missed them. I yearn for them. So I would say heart is more nefesh in Hebrew, which is soul. So soulless is heartless. So a hardened heart is soulless. This is just um, the mental faculty and how quickly those conduits of decision making. And we can really, I mean, if anybody's in the therapeutic world or even the Kabbalistic world, these choice points, how quickly they harden. Bechira, back to this free will and choice. And so that God, in a sense, does not allow Pharaoh. God does not say, I will give you the choice, Pharaoh, whether to free these people or not. God has said it explicitly. This is the cycle of natural occurrences combined with a political obstinacy that will ultimately undermine Pharaoh and his and his people. So now let's get to the text. Yeah. All right. Is it clear the kind of trajectory we're going to have? The goal here truly is to ask in what ways our minds and hearts are hardened, stiffened or simply heavy and how those are different aspects of this moral arteriosclerosis that we become indifferent. Uh, because this is a national story, but it's also a personal story. We're on, uh, in there, we are on page 336, 7. Yes. Do you think that God did harden in whatever stiffened or, or you know, whichever things he did um, with the idea of looking down the line and saying that it's going to lead to this uh, uh, and lead to uh, letting uh, Israelites go. Uh, so, so basically a plan. Right. Because I, I'm confused if he, however, we, again, we say hard and um, the idea is the same. If, if God creates uh, recalcitrance in, uh, in Pharaoh, it's almost unfair to then blame Pharaoh for not being responsible. That's correct. That is Ibn Ezra. And what Torah... See, uh, it's hard for me to assign God this kind of manipulation. But as a parent, I know sometimes it takes more than simply a suggestion to get a child to change their behavior. So if they don't clean their room initially... You say, clean your room. They don't clean their room. And then you're surprised that there are ants in the room because, oh, this happened (laughs) two weeks ago. He's upset that there are ants in the room. I thought you had it sprayed. I thought you, you know, cleared the, the ants. Well, if you put ice cream wrappers and you don't clean them up and you stash them in a corner of the room that I can't see them. Now. I do not harden Nathan's heart, mind, to say, clean your room. But then it got worse. Now, first was a sign. It's a dirty room. The second is a plague. There are ants in his room. The third that, you know, he, is, he has been bitten by spiders. Oh, my God, I have boils. Well, you didn't clean your room. No. Now, and I could go through it. The first one, the stiffness is cash, uh, cash is straw, brittle, simply refusing to um, refusing to even acknowledge the fact. Just slam the door. I'm sorry. Nathan's a dear. He's a lovely kid. I shouldn't. <laughs> Can I just ask you, isn't wearing it's such a party. And this is why you have more than one kid. So at least you, And now I understand why people have a third child after their kid is like 11. And you're like, why did you have that? Because it's, oh, this one, ah. He's just stiff-necked, right? Kishino oref. Do you remember this in Yom Kippur? We say, kishino. This is, this is not principled. This is simply just refusing to do anything. Then that second veyachazek is a real strength. This is my right. This is my autonomy. This is my room. And yechabed is, yeah, okay. (laughs) And unfortunately, that's where we're, I think, often that third stage of that hardened. There's nothing to do anyway. You can't even motivate the, yeah, that's why it is. Are we (laughs) supposed to 
Well, that's yes. And that's my challenge. I, well, that's what I want to explore with you. And I'm being full disclosure. I am not sure where this is going to go. <laughs> and they all may be, and they are. There are variations on a theme, but I think they're very different. Mm-hmm. I think they're very different. Like, not my issue. It is my issue, but I have, I'm thinking about the refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. Border wall is stiffen. Look, not not me, not me. Keep them out. Stiff. The via chazek is I need security. This is American values. We we cannot handle this crisis, and people aren't doing their responsibility on the outside. That's a more hardened. You know what? The the dull via chabed. The worst is yeah. I know. Mm-hmm. We had it before. We'll have it again. And I don't really care. Do you? I got well. The gun issue is very much. We can. Uh, it destroys this morning. That's fair. So then let's return. That's why I was using my child. Okay. But it's so relevant. I mean, I we're all thinking the same name. This is not the time and place. This is not the time and place. Chapter 7. And God replies to Moses, I see you in the role of God to Pharaoh. Now, let's look at the Hebrew very closely. I just want to be very clear here. <coughs> Vayomer Adonai el Moshe re'ei nataticha Elohim lefaro. I give to you as a God to Pharaoh. What does it say in the English? Role of God. It does not say role. Moses is an agent, not just an agent of God. Moses is seen as a God because Pharaoh is seen as a God. And Elohim, here is the last time in this section that Elohim is used as a God amongst gods to Adonai, which is a personal agent of salvation. From that point on, Adonai becomes the God of Israel. Elohim is the general God amongst gods. Okay, that was a a side point to this theme. Okay. And you will speak all that I have commanded. And your brother Aaron will speak to Pharaoh and to send out the children of Israel from his land. And I will, it says harden, but I believe that this is, and I will simply stiffen. I, he will refuse to heed the call. And therefore, that stiffening, that refusal, will allow me to multiply my ot, ototai vemoftai, signs and marvels. Are these negative at this point? Yeah. No. They're just signs. Now, they're not pretty. We know them coming. I mean, we know them coming. But at this point, these are otot and moftai. And a, and a mofet is actually a miracle. So what is so tragic is and so difficult is that the miracle and the anti-miracle, it's very hard to distinguish what is the cataclysms, the birth pangs of the Messiah, and this, uh, this devolving environmental disaster. But getting to your original point about whether uh, Pharaoh was morally responsible, isn't God clearly saying that God will make Pharaoh do something? It is the he feel, this verb form, I will cause Pharaoh's heart to harden. This is what God says up front. But in Torah, you always have to look what is said and then how that narrative develops. Because God may be saying, just like a parent, and I will announce your room will become a maelstrom of disease and pestilence unless you pick that clothes off your... So, so yes, that is what God says. Now let's, now let's bear it out. When Pharaoh does not heed you, but God, but he will not obey Pharaoh. So that I can put my hand into Egypt, and so I can put my hand upon Egypt and deliver my people from the land 
of Egypt Shvatim Gedolim. Shvatim again. Is this a plague? We haven't heard plague. These are signs. Yeah, but that's the English. Tzvaot, my hosts. Extraordinary, yes. Be shvatim gedolim. And then they will know intimately the Egyptians that I am God. Bintoti et yadi in stretching out my hand onto Egypt, and taking the children of Israel from within them. Okay. That's what he says. That's the, that's the declaration. And so here before, now we just have to narratively say, okay, I haven't seen one of the things that he's going to do. Mm-hmm. Yes. But that statement seems like it's, he's making it more about himself. That God is. They will see that I am God. Yes. But what is that God? But what is that primary function of that God to allow these Jews, uh, Israelites that have been enslaved, to be set free? So, yes. That I is, I is liberator. So there is a separate Torah study that was not my uh, intent today, which would be, is God also somewhat narcissistic and sees the world only in his way? And Pharaoh and God are having this. And then Moses, in fact, this is a different Torah study. We'll do this next year. Moses, in fact, thinks that he's Elohim because God put him in that very sense. This is a great study, but not for the, oh, next week, but Amy's coming back. So Rabbi Bernstein will be here. She's having a good vacation, thank God. This is a class of the Titans. Right. Because Pharaoh was a god to the Egyptians. And so you've got kind of gods versus God. God versus God. And that is what makes the distinct... And I just let's... Now I'm going to put a heavy stop on this to say no. Because Greek clash of titans or any other theologies are about a pantheon of human to human, human gods. This god is both above it but there's a little wink-wink that I'm going to show my signs. There is some ego involved in this, but I would say to what end? So that justice can prevail. Micah? Yes? It seems, too, that there is a... I've always thought this story had to do with just freeing the, the Jews from slavery, and, but there's a much greater realm to this story than just that one narrow line. Oh, absolutely. And, and the prophet said this the best, Jeremiah... It's really staggering. Um, Israel wasn't the goal. It was so that Israelites could serve God. Mm -hmm. And that Jeremiah believed that the true calling of Israel was not to go in to enter the land of Israel, but to make Egypt into Israel. Hmm. And to topple Pharaoh and make that society one of equity and justice. And so that Mitzrayim... And then, and Jeremiah is even harsher because remember, he's seeing an Israel and a Jerusalem that is somewhat corrupt. And he says, look, Mitzrayim's a state of mind. Your Israel can become Mitzrayim. And Mitzrayim can become God's land. Can we also, since you had mentioned a little bit earlier, sort of the choke points for decisions were made? Yes. Can we also look at it in a reframe it as an extended commentary on the impact of fear and the unwillingness to change. Yes. Because uh, God doesn't have to harden Pharaoh's heart by stiffening his heart. All he has to do is just suggest an additional item to amplify the fear that is already in Pharaoh's heart about the possibility of change. Pharaoh is, uh, you know, maybe he doesn't see the initial justice of the argument. Yeah, yeah. Probably after the first first plague or two, he will come to... Well, you know, he waffles. Maybe the right thing to do will be to let him go. Maybe that is the just thing to do. Maybe that is the way that I can maintain control over my country. Absolutely. He starts moving in that direction, but because that kind of colossal change, because it would 
well, what it means to people in Egypt. Yes. They see their God giving in. And being limited. Slaves, yes. Right? That's not going to... So he has that dynamic that he, he has to, like, his internal political needs. And then all God has to do is whisper in his ear, yeah, but you're going to look bad to the Egyptians. You know, what are your reporters going to say? All that sort of thing. And that's what produces the, I, I can't go through with it. But everybody has these points of fear. Absolutely. Including God, by the way, in the desert. When God, after the golden calf, says, I'm going to destroy all of the children of Israel, Moses says to God, what would the Egyptians say? <laughs> you took these people out of Egypt to what? To take them all out, which goes back to your a real challenging theory that this is ego development. And that fear was already back in place in the first paragraph of this, this story of the Exodus. He didn't know Joseph. He didn't remember that the Israelites were the solution, that people were, these people actually provided strength and fortification. And it was, it was a fear of an outside agency. And I think this question, uh, before Mark, we continue, this is really what I want to focus on personally and spiritually, which is, okay, to what extent are there outside challenges? Of course there are. And there always will be. To what extent do I, and my mom therapist, every time you point a finger, you got three fingers pointing back. Mm -hmm. To what extent is the, are these scenarios that I have personally created? by my stiffness, by my hardening, by my, op let's, let's try to do it differently, by my refusal, by my obstinacy, and by my ultimate dullness. Obdur obstinate versus obdurate, I think is the way to. And you're never using the word stubborn. Oh, that's interesting. It's yeah. a little different in a way. Yeah, there's not just a retrench. So let's 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 go back to the text because I think this does play out somewhat. So then it says in verse seven, just how old they were. Uh, there's midrash on that. So now I'm turning the page, chapter seven, uh, verse eight. And God said to Moses and Aaron, "Ki parole mor, go ahead." When Pharaoh says, go make your magic, you give me your miracle, and then you go to Aaron and say, take your rod, cast it down before Pharaoh, and it should turn into, now this is all, litanin, litanin, it says serpent. And, ah, good. So a nachash is a snake. That's when, you know, the medical uh, shield that has the staff with the snakes, that's a snake. What is a tanin? It's a leviathan. Yeah, bigger. And what is a leviathan? This is a, it's almost a demigod. Uh, and they go all the way back to the beginning. This is God against God. So if you could take this staff and turn it into a tanin... And they do just as God commanded. You know that this is just the intro. This is the amuse-bouche of curses here. <laughs> and so Pharaoh, he's got the sages and the magician priests in turn do the same with their spells. Each cast down his rod and they turn into serpents. And then, yay, this is a little, it's such a dude like rod for rod thing. And then his rod swallow their rods. And yet... And this is George, what I want to say. The first one, Pharaoh's heart stiffened. And this is that first, ooh, they're doing something. Wow. They won that first little battle. Uh-uh. Nuh-uh. It's a stiffen. It's not an internal process. Gosh, I'm just not going to hear it. Not going to do it. But that was not God doing that. Self-protective, defensive, but I'm not going to internalize, wow, what that may mean. And I think that is fear-based. That, that is coming from a place of like, I don't know what to do here. And so, and this is what I love about Torah, Ka'asher diber Adonai. 
just as God has said, and I'll say this as a teacher again and again, whenever someone says, it's just like I told you, it means that's not what they told you. <laughs> but there's also a different word from the first time that was translated as stiff. Stiffened, v'yechazek, yes. Right. And then the other one was hardened. And I think... Yechazek is hard here. I'm sorry. Akshe is stiff. This is this one. V'yechazek, this is hardened. Right. The first one is stiffened. V'ani, verse 3 on the page before, Akshe. And they both translated the same way. Translation says stiffened in both cases. No. Verse 3 here is, I will harden, and this one is stiffened. And this is actually this question. Eksha? Ve'yechazek? Oh, they say stiffen it. Yeah, I have it, I have it reversed. Because kash is stiff. Kash straw is stiff. Echazek is obdurate. I do believe that those are better translations. Forgive me for the great translators. But is this... Let me take a pause here. Does this make sense that these are two different types of resistance? One which is just refusing to shut it out and the other is more of a solid... an active solid stance. And George, back to the initial point, which is why I want to bear it out, is the initial refusals or the initial actions towards not allowing this to happen are internal. We're just allowing, uh, the way Eric Fromm says, you can allow evil to be just by letting it be. People will choose to do what they're right. By not doing anything, you're allowing that to happen. And then when it's too far to say, look, see, it was your choice. But down that line, you know, day seven of vacation that my kid is on, you know, whatever he's watching, to say, now you're not allowed to watch anymore. Well, I had to set up a whole series of activities from day one in order for that to happen. But we also know that God wants this to be uh, a grand spectacle of liberation. Wants to have a showdown. I mean, really wants it to be high noon. What is the role in all this of the fact that Moses has great trouble speaking, that he's mute, that his tongue is hardened. Yes. So you have the irony that the man whose hardened tongue is nevertheless more eloquent than the... So, so first, that's why Aaron is there. Aaron's, Aaron's the smoothie. Aaron's the speech, speechifier. He's the Ben Rhodes of... No, sorry, sorry. But I, I want to say specifically about to the lips. It is called in Hebrew, Aral Sfataim. Uncircumcised lips. And what does it mean to have uncircumcised? Now, strange term, right? So... And what is the circumcision itself, if not taking the most sensitive thing, which is issue and progeny, and saying, yes, God has something to do with this. You've got freedom in bondage. Freedom, but choice to also serve. So when Moses says, I have uncircumcised lips, it means I have not crafted my relationship with you well enough yet to actually go head to head as, as Adonai, so this is why I think he says, I put to you as another Elohim. And he says, come on, I don't have your voice yet. I don't have that authentic voice. And Aaron can say whatever, and notice, God says, do these things. So they say, okay, well, I'll just do it. Moses knows, and this is where his uncircumcised lips by the end become the most prolific and profound statements of God. At this point, I think he's still in the I'm not worthy stage. And God is like, I know you're not worthy. Now go up and, and, and fight the fight. So to Pharaoh's uh, obstinacy, obduracy, uh, heaviness, is Moses continuing to be pushed by God in this? And I think that irony is, is, is really intense. The person of uh, unclean, not unclean as much as 
And there's Midrash that says that Moses was supposed to touch. Uh, he wanted to look at the gold, but then his hand naturally went to the hot coal to see if he was humble, and that's why he has the the lips. I don't think so. And there's a very strange scene right before this where his son is circumcised, and Moses, the circumcision of the son, is taken to the hand. It's a very strange scene, but it is a type of conversion scene uh, for Moses because we don't have conversion at this point. That's a again. I'm trying to stay linear, Carol. Good. Uh, we are now... 14. Thank you. Vayomar Adonai Moshe. And God said to Moses, Kaved lev paro ma'en ha'am. See, Pharaoh is stubborn. Kaved lev paro. It's heavy, this mind. He refuses to let the people go. That's strange. That takes some discussion here. Why is God at this moment trying to convince Moses about the condition of Pharaoh when he said two paragraphs before, this is exactly what I'm going to do? Is he, is he trying essentially build Moses up in Moses' own mind. Does Moses come to this confrontation with a little bit of an inferiority complex? Uh, and God is saying, I'll harden his heart. No matter you know, what you do, you're not going to change it. To your, you know, give it your best shot. Uh, yeah, what happened between 13 and 14? Gosh, Moses is stubborn. Does that imply? And I'm openly thinking here with you that God's like, wow, this is going to be, this is going to take more than I thought. It's going to take more than just a rod and a snake. Kaved left paro. Wow, Pharaoh is stubborn. Or you could also interpret it as kaved left paro. Harden his heart, uh, heavy his heart. Show him the gravity of this situation. Me'ain, because he will not send the people. You have got to make this. We were playing with toys in the last paragraph, sticks and snakes. This is this is going to be big. This is serious. <clears throat> this is serious. <clears throat> and now lech el paro. And there is another study and another year to compare this to the Abraham scene where God says to Abraham, leave all that you've known before. This is a real interpersonal conflict. So it's when, when it really is tough, you still have to go. You still have to act. Can you talk? The harder it becomes, the, more you the double down. And that knockdown drag out that you may have to go through may go 10 rounds. But if you only do two rounds and quarter solve the problem and kick that can down the road, these people need to leave. And also, is he just trying to convince the, uh, is God trying to convince, convince only the only Moses and Pharaoh? Also the Egyptians? Who else is the other huge group that's quite comfortable in Goshen right now? The Israelites. The Israelites themselves are unconvinced at this point. One of the Rabbis who wrote an interpretation of last week's Pasha in the mm-hmm, journal mm-hmm. said that only 25% of the Israelites agreed to leave. I don't know. Where did you get that number? The Yerev Rav. So there's a small number. We have this list of the genealogy. I'm guessing. I, I didn't read the piece. But the Yerev Rav, there was this mass of of both Egyptians and non-Israelites that joined this smaller group in the mass exodus in that moment. That may be what he's referring to. How did you get 600,000 from the census that we just had in in the previous chapter? Because there was this really revelatory moment that they were going out and that other people joined this liberation movement. 
Yeah, I, I don't know what he does. Mm -hmm. I, I think what you say, but playing it against the foundational mythology that's clearly rooted in this spot. Mm -hmm. next to this section and the next section. And freedom is really a verb. And through this process, you've got to work for your freedom. So I see these more as symbols in a process of creating a people, creating the roots of foundational mythology, and various forms of action brought into the world to create fundamental change from the first generation. And that's how I kind of, the rest of this becomes a story. Mm -hmm. But the message begins here. This is where we're born. And the message continues here where we are now. I, I think you, what you're really referring back to is our Haggadah. This is our Haggadah. This is the way that we tell this story. And Mark, I don't want to reinterpret for you, but I took you out. I sent you free. I lifted you up and I redeemed you. These these five terms actually there's another the ga'alti is the ultimate redemption that's our story and then against that we have the khabadati and i've been hardened and i've been stiffened and i've been and i've been resistant and i've been obd i won't move within those and so these two gods one is a dynamic god and one is a static god and that is very much the contrast we are going to serve this god in the desert this is why I think the Israel to the land of Israel uh, is not uh, so strong within this Exodus narrative. It is shlach ami avduni. So I'm just going to interpret it. Uh, oh no, here we have it right here. Let's let's keep going. And so I appreciate that. But in this myth and narrative, personally, Mark, I think I'm really asking myself, what type of hardness am I? And what type of liberation am I? So am I free as a soul, but without cause? Am I just like, yay, I'm not being under duress. That is let my people go without the second half of the sentence. I think that's what we've done in some ways, a disservice to the, to the text. Let's get right to it. Lechel paro baboker. Go to uh, Pharaoh in the morning. Remember, Abraham goes in the morning. Baboker. Hine yotze hamayma. And come towards this water at the edge of the Nile and use that rod with the snake and say, This is big. Adonai Elohe Ha'ivrim. This Adonai, this tetragrammaton, this particular individual God, is the God of the Ivrim. And I we translate it as Hebrews, but it's really the crossovers. Over, those that cross over. Shlachani Alecha. Send them to you saying, Shlach et ami avduni bamidbar. Now I want to take this slowly. All right. I'm going to sing the first half, you sing the second. <laughs> when Moses was in Egypt land, <coughs> but it's not just to let them go. Shlach ami avduni so that they can and I it says worship me but that's not even right either it's not a woo there's a service there's a, and this is explicit because eved is a slave is a servant and so that I am ultimately liberated towards service not servitude Service, not servitude. And I, I, I want to say it's not worship. It's a kind of open-hearted, supple, um, light, lightness. It's, it's the opposite of that. As a community, and I want to say it explicitly here, Bamidbar, in the wilderness. It's not set up as this geopolitical struggle that I think we've formed, you know, between Egypt and Israel. 
it's between this people within a, and a greater people that have a unique destiny of, of service versus, I like that, service versus servitude. Hine lo shamata adko. You have not shamata, obeyed. List here is not even enough. Shema Yisrael. You have not obeyed this message until now. I will strike with the staff that is in my hand on this water that is uh, in my hand and the Yaor, this deep river will be flipped to blood. <coughs> okay, it's 10.30. I'm going to go for, this is what I call a 20-second timeout. So, I love this theory of natural disasters trying to outline the plague, so, so I'm going to give it a shot. So, this was a natural gas leak that started deep down, a methane leak that began to oxidize oxi- the copper in the water. It oxidized the water which turned that to blood-red copper, which then took the frogs out of the river so that they inhabited the land. And then with such terrible frogs everywhere, that led to lice, which ultimately infested the animals, which then the animals then ultimately... And if you don't pay attention to the natural disasters, small, that escalate to big. So then, let me get to the death of the firstborn. I'm trying to keep it to 20 seconds, all right? And by the way, darkness actually is a thick, palpable darkness that if that toxicity comes down and hailstones can absolutely, with that climactic change, have a microclimate that turns to both fire and hail in that moment. And then that darkness that's palpable. And a locust plague can absolutely come from that microclimate change. So here's the death of the firstborn. I forget which scientist told me this. I wish I remembered his or her name. So... The firstborn. Where do the firstborn live in Egyptian homes? Think the opposite of air conditioning. (laughs) There is no air conditioning. Where do you live if you're the wealthiest or the best? If you're Greg Brady, where do you live? You're the firstborn. In your own room. And where's the best room in the house? Down below. below. Not up top. Because up top, all the heat's raising. That's where the servants are. So and all your first cattle and all your first, that's in this first flow. So if it was a natural gas leak that was permeating the entire valley and region, that can ultimately lead to the death of all of your firstborn cattle and all of your firstborn. And somehow that darkness that you saw, that horrible plague in Goshen, because you're in a different plane that doesn't have that kind of cataclysmic uh, gas leak. A lot of legends can be explained scientifically. But But that's not the story. That's why it thus endeth the 22nd time out. And it it doesn't lessen the message of the story itself, that there may be a scientific reason why it happened. The message is still very powerful. That's why we can look at the Torah, even knowing what we know and where we are now, and find it equally valuable. Well, there's no question that I could turn now to the environmental consequences. That would be the rest of that 20-second time out. But I want to return to this question about our own agency, but our own agency in this, in this story. So yes, when the Egyptian magician priests could do the same with their spells, again, George, verse 22... I'm on Magicians somehow put blood and kill fish? Where, where does that happen? The magicians can also make this, uh, make that particular uh, water into blood phenomena. No, but the Nile was already bloody. Yes, that's what I'm saying. So how can... If Pharaoh's magicians were really prophets, they would be able to turn the blood back to water. 
And so then this next plague is also frogs. They could make frogs. Yeah. Oh, you make problems? I think, I think what you're understanding, if I understand correctly, is that uh, in verse 21 it says, And the fish in the Nile died. The Nile sank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile, and there was blood throughout the land of Egypt. But when the Egyptian magicians did the same with their spells, so, no, so I think the question is, how did this manifest, how did that, that manifest if the river was, was already bloody? What did they do? Yeah. They showed, I, I would think, back to Pharaoh. You see how he did this with this thing? I could also make water. Here, take a cup of water, and I could turn it into this. Oh, I and I could make it stinky. So he's like, okay, you can do that with your tricks. I know my people can do that with my tricks. But that's what I meant. Thank you. They could also do it. And also we'll see this with the frogs. They can increase frogs, but what they couldn't do, make them go away. So, and, I'll, and I'll say this back to the first question of Pharaoh's dreams with Joseph. Could they really not interpret those dreams? They didn't know how to fix the problem. They didn't have a long-term solution. Yes, Carol? An obscure question. Oh, great. <laughs> Water into wine? Yes. Um, I don't believe so. I didn't think so, but it just popped in my head. <coughs> no, loaves and fishes, I think, was more, but that transubstantiation, yeah, there, there was that miracle, but no. I'd have to look back on, on more of my New Testament stuff to see, but I don't think they come back to this. But I think what's, so for me, Vaifen Paro, this is the... Uh, George, to challenge you that this is not God doing it, but Pharaoh. And just, you can imagine yourselves or someone you know. So as soon as the magicians could repeat this same trick, the Chazak Lev Pharaoh, his heart uh, hardened and did not listen to them. Just as God had said, Vayifen Pana and Ga and Pharaoh turned, and this is so big. Vayavo el beto, and he went into his palace. Veloshat libo, he would not spend an iota of his mental faculties on also this. He wasn't. And now this is a question, because if it's fear, that's going to consume me. Mm-hmm. My God, they did the sticks, they did the snakes, then they did the snakes, and then they went to the river. What's happening after the river? The fish have died. What, you know what? How I'm going to binge watch. <laughs> I don't know what it is when he returns to his palace. Vayifen, pana, is the opposite of chuva, because chuva is turning. He is not having that moment and that is obdurate he also has no seems to have no concern for the Egyptians he's, he's, he, all he cares about is whether his magicians can do the same thing as Moses but not that the Egyptians are suffering I would agree it has not entered his mind that he could lose his, his people which he doesn't by the way I mean through the story Pharaoh remains Pharaoh even after all of his soldiers and all the king's men. Kind of, for me, it kind of gets back to the Battle of the Titans. <clears throat> how how so? so? If, well, as Pharaoh sees it, his, you know, it's like his magicians against Moses and Aaron's magicians. Mm-hmm. That it's, it's a battle of strength to see who can win. And Moses, I mean supposedly, is there for the people. He's doing this so that the people can be free, whereas Pharaoh is doing it just as a power. And, and doing is not doing. No, doing not is doing refusing, is just refusing to act. And we'll see. He does it incrementally, and he does just enough not to make radical change. I think that's actually where I wanted to be, and we only have five minutes, which is in each of these steps. So there's the frogs... And then it says, let me, ha- uh, let me do that. The Pharaoh's magicians can multiply the frogs, but cannot make them go away. And then we have lice. And then, this is the finger of God, the Pharaohs realize. Yes? But if the, pur- if the purpose is to ultimately lead 
to the to freedom for the for the Hebrews? Why engage in an act of terrorism? Uh, terror. Essentially, you're poisoning the water. You're poisoning the water supply. Because the goal is not just to let these people sneak out in the middle of the night, but to let the entire universe know that this one little pharaoh who's king of all of Egypt and pretty much everything around is not the head honcho, and that the Egyptians know this, this particular king is not the leader of the world, and that ultimately, if you refuse to listen to those who authentically want to worship in the in the desert, these and we need all ten. But isn't, but isn't, and I would say nine. It, it would, but isn't it still the end justifying the means? If you think that the means were to really take this people no, no, out, the end, the end is let's taking them out. That the end is as you, as you say, not just taking them out but also to, for the world to know that a tyrant cannot Correct. You know, forever enslave people just through his whim. Yes. Okay. You're still engaging in acts that are harming other people, harming innocent people. Um, up to harming livestock, harming cattle, harming nature... The Egyptians could not drink the water from the Nile. Right, so that they were they, they were thirsty, but they weren't killed yet. Absolutely against us. Which I would say, I am Moses saying to you, America, stop your de- 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 treatment of this environment and, you know, as the Pope is... Oh, come on, what's the difference? One plastic cup, another plastic cup. You know, single-use bottles. No one's dying over this. Well, no, there's a tremendous disruption. And at the end, here's what I want to challenge you with, is that, uh, and I love teaching, um, and so there's, I won't be here next week, so I can't get you to the 10th plague, um, but I want to get there. What Just was in, number six? What bo- uh, boils, and then there's animal... Uh, so number six is boils. Okay. And this is number six is, and then God hardened the heart, and then God hardened the heart. But that heart, I would argue, has been kind of plagued out. Now the tenth, the final plague. Now this is a this is a Micah special, and so so far I've really tried to say this difference between. Uh, Obstinance and obduracy and simply just kind of a turning and a dulling are very different aspects to refusal. But here on this final plague, I don't believe that God wanted the 10th plague to be the death of the firstborn. I think Moses got himself into his own fury and spoke in God's name. And since he was God's agent, God had no choice but to do the very horror that he did. But that's a tragic ending to this story that God wanted nine plagues, that God wanted it to end in simply darkness because there's nothing more powerful than a silent, and it is terror, but it's no violence darkness, this palpable darkness. And the people were in light. They could have left at that moment. And then he says this last sign, that last line. I'm sorry, this, this is already in the Pesach. All right. Um. Sorry. Oh, oh. Next week. No, I know. That's why I'm. Pharaoh saw. Uh, now I'm on page three fifty nine at the end. Or three. <laughs> okay, verse twenty eight, page three sixty. Pharaoh said to him, Be gone from me. Be gone from me. Take care not to see me again. For the moment you look on my face, you shall die. Pharaoh challenges Moses, God to God or agent of God, and says, If you see me one more time, you're going to die. This is high noon. And then Moses says, You said it right. I will never see you again. And then God says, and then God says to Moses, 
I will have one more plague, and he shall set you free indeed. He lets you go. He'll go one and all. Tell the people to borrow and do all of this thing, silver and gold. And God made Egypt love. Now I'm on page 362. I'm sorry, it's, it's uh, time to go. Egypt, Pharaoh loved the people and esteemed in the land. Oh my God, at this point, this is a bloodless coup. It's silent. The people are giving the Israelites, please go, I wish you well. And then what does Moses say? Thus says God. But God didn't say that before here. Correct. Moses made it up. You just, that was one step too far. You're a man of faith. Towards midnight I will go forth among the Egyptians and every male firstborn in the land shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the slave girls behind the millstone. Firstborn of all cattle there should be a loud cry and there will be never such a cry again. Do you see how we became... Moses actually became the worst iteration of what he was in this very moment. In order, you should know, Adonai makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. And this is why Jeremiah is crying over this. That really Egypt could have been Israel. Anywhere can be Israel with that right sense of mind. And all of these courtiers shall say, depart, and I will depart and he left Becharia'af in this burning rage. And so my theory, just to close, is we must be intrepid. We must certainly try in all of our power not to be these things, but to send ourselves in holiness and righteousness without, I don't even want to call it collateral damage. I want to say without violence that is unnecessary to achieve the means of celebration and worship. Yes, if there is a totalitarian ruler that is keeping me, I must break that oppression, but not go any further to undermine the values of the God that I'm going out to worship.